Welcome to the Forgotten ECE, the show where before and after school educators, summer camp and PD staff and CYWs have a place where they are seen, heard, and valued. I'm your host, Jamie Wagler, and I am so excited you're here. Hello and welcome to the Forgotten ECE. I'm your host, Jamie Wagler. Thanks for tuning in. Last episode, we talked about advocating for ourselves as professionals and for the program to be seen as it should be, essential and important. Well, I'm not done with the advocation train because today we're going to discuss another area that needs a little help and expertise, a little guidance, I guess I would say. Risky play. What's that? Never heard of it. What an interesting new concept. Okay, I know, I know. As RECs and ECs, you are most likely extremely familiar with the topic. How can you not be? The concept itself gained attention in the early 2000s, which was only 24 years ago. Let's just hold that thought for a minute. The early 2000s was 24 years ago. Okay, okay, okay. It may come to no surprise when discussed, it's often referred to in examples of preschool and toddler children. I'm here to tell you that it's equally important in school age programs. It might even be a little riskier, but thrilling and exciting. More so for the kids partaking and less so for the adults watching or standing nearby, making sure no one, you know, seriously injures themselves, but it's essential. But let's start with the big basics. What is risky play for those of you listening who might not know or who might be curious? It's defined by thrilling and exciting forms of free play that involve uncertainty of outcome. There is a possibility of physical injury, usually within risky play. But as mentioned, it is essential for child's development for their physical, mental, and social health. It's our job as educators to view children as competent, capable, and curious beings. And the only way we can do that is treat them as though they're competent and capable and curious. But how can you fully jump into that definition or fully embrace that outlook on children if you're not willing to let them take risks, take chances, get messy, But in all seriousness, it's not just about the child being comfortable, the child being comfortable in the risk. It's also about where you're comfortable and reflecting on yourself to see if your comfortableness is imposing on how competent a child could be at the risk that they're taking. And one way to counteract your comfortable levels and giving yourself some confidence in the children's capabilities is providing an area or a designated space for risky play to happen. Setting aside an area specifically designed for risky play, such as a natural playscape or adventure playground where children can climb, balance, jump, and explore freely will give them the opportunities in a controlled environment to do this sort of play. Risky play is seen in categories, and one of the categories is playing at heights. Personally, in our summer camp program, 
We let our kids climb trees. We have a rule around it that we've come up with as a collective with the students each year that involves children being able to get in the tree themselves. If they can't get in the tree themselves or find a way into the tree using their knowledge, then they can't climb the tree. That is not to say that if they pull up a ladder and get in the tree themselves that they can't do it. Nope. If that's what they come up with, then hey, have at her. But they also have to be able to use their brain, use that cognitive knowledge on how to solve a problem. Other sorts of climbing that is usually frowned upon is climbing fences, which I don't really understand because, I mean, what really could happen with climbing fences? I know know, I'm not silly. I'm not dumb. I understand that fences are there for a reason and that probably encouraging children to climb over fences might give them a certain skill set that they might not want to have when they're older. But what a challenge. I'm always, I've always been a person that if someone's putting a wall up in front of me, the, the more I want to get over that wall. And a climbing a fence is a perfect physical example of that. You tell a child they can't climb a fence, the first thing they're going to want to do is climb the fence. But going back to setting up these natural areas for them to risk take, if you have climbing materials in those areas, then maybe they'd be less likely to climb the fence. Or is there a fence that you can set up that's meant for them to climb? I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. I honestly just think that providing the safe area to do so will benefit children in the long run. Also under this category of playing at height is jumping. I have seen firsthand educators not allow children to jump out of or off of playground structures for the risk of hurting themselves when they jump down. But for the life of me, when I think about me as a child, jumping out of those play structures was the fun part. Climbing on top of the tunnels that you climb in on the play structure, you know what I'm talking about. Those big yellow or green tunnels that you would crawl from one side of the wooden platform to the other. Trying to climb on top of there or climb on top of the railings was the best part and it all goes back to that controlled environment our playgrounds are as at early childhood education centers at child care centers are assessed by third-party companies in the playground safety csa certified so if we have climbing materials that the ground has the good fall depth why not let them jump off the playground? Why not let them climb on top of these tunnels? This is what play's about. What about balancing on top of the railings? Unpopular opinion. What's the worst that's going to happen? And then think about what's the chances of that worst thing happening. If a child is confident enough to stand on top of the railing, dare I say they might be capable enough to walk across the railing. I know. I know. I know what you're thinking. I might be losing some credibility, but children need to test these boundaries. They need to know that they are in charge of testing these boundaries and that we are going to help provide encouragement where it's needed. Okay, 
The next category is playing at speed. Biking, sledding, skating, sliding at high speeds. How do we foster this in our centers? Do you allow your school-agers to bike? Do you have outdoor toys for them, such as bikes? The last time I... Wow, I'm coming to a realization right now. I've worked in a few centers, and none of them had adequate speed materials or toys for outdoor play. Like, we have trikes for preschoolers and toddlers, but where's the bikes for the school-agers? Wow. Okay, what about having a bike day? What if you let kids bring their bikes to childcare for a day? Would you let them bike around at high speeds? And what does high speeds look like? Because for one kid, might be which might be high speed or fast, is not the same for another kid. And in our programs, in these before and after school programs, that varies greatly. JK to age 12 is a huge gap. And not every child is going to be where each other is, if that has made sense at all. But what's fast for a 12-year-old is not going to be fast for a 4-year-old and vice versa. So how can you be an advocate for this type of play? Easy. Know your stuff. Children need to develop a significant amount of biking skill and experience before attempting high speed. They have to be able to sit on a bike and ride a bike. No one who can ride a bike, who cannot ride a bike is biking fast. Let's be honest. And the kids that are, they learned how to ride. You have to trust that they have the skills that they need. You have to see them as competent and capable in this skill set. Obviously, you're not leaving them alone. You're supervising them. You're there in case anything happens, in case you have to intervene. And obviously, safety care is a huge must-have. If this is the type of play you're allowing and that you are, are going to try, children should have to wear a helmet. That, that goes without question. Children have to wear helmets. If they have knee and elbow pads, by all means, great. And then providing a safe environment to do so. Obviously, parking lots aren't always the safest, but if it's after hours at a school and the parking lot's clear, why not? Try it out. And it's not going to happen overnight. One day, they're going to let the kids bring their bikes. They're not magically going to be able to, all of them, super sonic speed bike. They will have a gradual progression, which will allow you and them to get comfortable with those speeds. But then advocating this to the families, advocating this to ministry, advocating this to your supervisors. This all goes back to seeing children as competent and capable. You have to trust that they know themselves because no one else knows them. All right. (laughs) Category three, my favorite. Play involving tools. I love this topic. I love this category. My first year at school age at my current place of work, I reached out on the internet. It started with a provocation. A child came in and was talking about a small engine that they got to check out with their parent over the weekend. And I remember when I was in high school that I got to take apart a small engine and it was a lot of fun. So I reached out on the good old Facebook and asked for anyone that would be willing to donate a small engine for children to take apart. We had an old sensory table that we weren't allowed to use at the time because 
it was COVID. So we, uh, a nice farmer had made sure all the liquid and oil was out of the small engine and donated it to me. So I went and picked it up, brought it in, had some tools that I borrowed from my dad. And I brought in a, a like a tool briefcase, if you want to call it that, with all the tools that they could need, including safety gloves and safety goggles. And we talked about the importance of wearing the goggles and the gloves when you're working on it. But when they came in Monday morning, there was this motor there and they were allowed to do whatever they wanted to to it. Take apart the screws, take a, hit it with a hammer, whatever they wanted to, as long as they were wearing their goggles and they were being mindful of the people around them. Tools should not be scary. We live in a society where you will need to know how to use a tool. And the faster you learn how to use those tools, the better for you. So either they use screwdrivers, uh, ratchets, pliers, what else? Oh, hammers. And I can't think of all the fancy names for tools, but you know, all of the fun things. And they really enjoyed it. This went on for three weeks of them trying to get this whole small engine apart, which was probably a task that was a little hard because it was old. So some of the bolts were rusted. But it was such an incredible thing to see them work together and problem solve on how to get this machine apart. And the things they thought this was for and how it ran, it was just beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And if I would have thought for a second that they weren't competent or that it was too risky to bring in tools, they would have missed out on an amazing learning opportunity. Other tools that I've seen in programs are small axes, saws, knives, ropes. A lot of people like to whittle with their children, which is super cool. Also, serving your own snack. And I don't mean just serving. I mean the preparations for snack. Cutting the cucumbers, cutting the bread, toasting the bread, obviously spreading the cream cheese or the wow butter or whatever you're having on your toast. Allowing children to use knives to cut their vegetables and fruit. It's another tool. It's another way to say that they're competent and capable. Wow, I feel like I'm saying that a lot this episode, but I really hope that you're taking away that children are competent and capable because if not, I uh, I don't know how else to say it clear. Another great category is play involving dangerous elements such as fire and water. Can, some of us aren't able to because we don't have the means to get there, but playing in water building a fire, having a fire outside. Obviously insurance has a lot to do with these rules, but I was lucky enough to work at a center that we got to have bonfires with the children. And I don't mean like, I shouldn't say bonfires. I should say campfires. We used to have campfires with the kids and we cook meals on top of the campfires. And it was so amazing. And children learn fire safety. They learned, okay, if we're having a fire, there has to be a bucket of water here. Okay. We're allowed to sit on the logs, but we're not allowed to get too close to the fire. Because we taught them. You talk it out. Children are so smart. They understand. Oh, that's a fire. I'm going to get burnt if I fall in it or if I run near it. But not allowing them to have these opportunities of learning. You're robbing them of the graciousness of learning. You're robbing them of these beautiful moments. Another topic, another category of risky play is playing with the risk of disappearing or getting lost. Now, this is tricky. At childcare, I must say, because 
Obviously, it's a serious occurrence if a child gets lost. But exploring spaces or play spaces, sorry, or fields with children, obviously not a cornfield, but where they're allowed to explore the area provided with bushes and places where they can hide or play hide and seek with each other with limited supervision. Wow, what an opportunity that would be. Growing up, we used to play hide and seek in the dark. We, we, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I lived in the country and we had an okay sized property and we'd play with the neighbors and our cousins. And when it was dark outside, we'd get to play hide and seek outside in the dark. And it was so much fun. Those are some of the best memories I had. And obviously we climbed trees to get away from each other. And it was, it was so cool. Those memories are memories that we will never be able to reproduce if I don't believe my kids are competent and capable to handle that as they get older. If I don't think the children at childcare are able to play in the dark, it's okay to have a light on. And when it gets dark in the evening before pickup, because we know in the winter, in the late fall, it gets dark. It's okay to stay outside. Or you put glow sticks on and play hide and seek in the gym in the dark. This kind of play is thrilling for the children. Other types of risky play that I wanted to touch on today were climbing up the slide. Why not? What is wrong with climbing up a slide? I was tutoring uh, ECE in college here in Ontario last year. And for one of their courses... They had to assess a video, and in the video, it was a child calling up a slide, and they were asked to mark it wrong, that that was unacceptable and too risky. What? If you work together to set out ground rules, then I would have to disagree. I don't think it's too risky. If someone's crawling up the slide, you don't go down. If someone's going down the slide, you don't crawl up it. It goes back to basic turn-taking. There's no reason it should be banned. It's like laying on your belly and going head first on the slide. What is the issue? I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. I know I'm optimistic, but these challenges seem almost silly to be fighting if you're actually viewing the child as smart. If you're viewing the child as someone who has a brain, as someone, again, as competent and capable, because there's no reason these things can't be done to an extent. The last area of risk taking I wanted to talk about, which does not provide a source of physical injury or a risk of physical injury, is social risks. We live in a high anxiety environment, and I believe that we can help. I'm not saying we can solve it, but I believe we can help with these anxieties if we provide opportunities for children to work through these anxieties with their social peers at childcare. How can we give school agers the tools to play with one another, to work through social situations that make them uncomfortable, to stand up for what they believe in? How do we teach them their rights and how to advocate for themselves? All of this can be seen as social risks. How do we teach children to stand up against bullying? How can we provide them the tools that they need to say no? I think that's a huge part of risky play because this sort of risk happens every day. Children need to learn to say no. They have to be able to set their own boundaries. They have to be able to give consent and they have to be able to deny consent. 
I think that risky play is important. And to reiterate, I think that there's a lot that we can do as before and after school educators to foster this sort of play in our programs and that it's essential, that it is a must. However you take this away, you might not agree with me and that is totally okay. But children are so much smarter and so much more competent and so much more capable than we give them credit for. And the only way that they are going to learn to set these boundaries and test their limits is by being provided opportunities to do so. I would love to hear from you and your ideas of how to incorporate risky play into before and after school education and your ideas on how to encourage risky play from educators who might not be as open to it. And also your ideas if you think I'm a quack. That's cool too. Everyone has their own opinion. I want to thank you for listening. And before I go, I thought it would be fun to do another question time. This is the part of the podcast that I answer your questions. So someone asked me about rough and tumble play in school age. And if I let the school agers partake in such a interesting play form. My answer is honestly depends on the situation. But to break it down for you, rough and tumble play refers to physical play activities characterized by wrestling, chasing, or any other forms of energetic but non-aggressive physical contact. I believe wholeheartedly that it is natural and healthy for children to explore their physical abilities and develop social skills through these establishing establishment of boundaries. That not only can it promote coordination and cooperation, but it also helps children learn about empathy, negotiation, and conflict resolution. But it needs to be supervised. And there needs to be consent from both parties. And there needs to be a, I want to say a safe word, that children say when they're done. They could be stop. When I say stop, I mean stop. I'm done playing. I don't like this anymore. Now, I don't let people, I don't let the children beat each other up. Not at all. I don't think that would go over very well. I mean, I could probably advocate for it, though. But it's not about the aggress- aggression. It's about play and learning boundaries. And if you don't, if you take anything away from this episode, I want it to be that, A, children are competent and capable. And the only way they can be competent and capable is if they are learning to set their own boundaries and they have opportunities provided to them to test their limits. And Rough and Tumble Pay is a perfect example of that. As always, thank you so much for joining me. Reach out for questions, comments. I appreciate all the shout outs and love that I'm getting. And I also appreciate any uh, constructive criticism. So thank you so much. Have an amazing week, two weeks until our next episode. And I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Thank you. Amazing listeners for your support. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at MissJamie underscore R-E-C-E. Give a star rating and leave a review. Have something you want to hear about in relation to before and after school programs or full day summer camp? DM me or comment. Again, thank you so much and happy learning. Happy learning.